0: And we'll be looking at chapters 8 and 9. Let's begin with prayer, shall we? Our Father, we pause to acknowledge the awesome sovereignty of your majesty and power. And our confession that you do indeed, or ordain whatsoever comes to pass on the earth and in the skies and in the waters under the earth. You are not inactive in terms of your providential governing of the creation that you have made. And even though it groans in travail under the curse that has come because of human sin, We acknowledge that you direct all things to your glory, even things that are beyond our comprehension, even tragedies that cause us to gasp in horror. Nonetheless, we acknowledge that you are Lord over all of the universe. So, in your sovereign Lordship, we pray that you will bring Comfort and relief to those that are in despair, those who are in pain, those who may even be on the brink of death and that in your goodness you might bring them to life. We pray for those who are Christians in Haiti and we ask your blessing upon their witness, particularly the witness in the face of so much sorrow and death and devastation. We also ask you Lord to bless all the means that are being used to aid them and to encourage the work of saving and extending life. We are dependent upon not only your providence but upon your saving grace. And We thank you that we can know that in the face of death and devastation. We cannot destroy our soul, for you have bought it. You have purchased it with the precious blood of your Son, and His blood speaks life everlasting, no more death evermore. We are greatly encouraged in our faith, and so we ask that you receive our thanks and bless those in need. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Second <clears throat> Samuel 8 is parallel to First Corinthians, First 8, Chronicles 18, I should say. And I don't want to minimize the relationship between the two passages. But I'm not going to particularly pay attention to that relationship. I just want to point out that there is a parallel version of the events in this chapter. Chapter 8 is the high watermark of David's career. It is, on my reading, the climax of David's upward spiral. It caps his ascendancy to uncontested monarch of Israel and confirms God's blessing on his occupation of Jerusalem as his capital, his transfer of the Ark of the Lord to Mount Zion with great joy, and his covenant relationship with God as son of his heavenly father. Here, in chapter 8, he extends his rule over the nations. Gentile kingdoms are subdued to his dominion as vassal states. A small kingdom becomes a small empire. This military and bloody expansion which is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abram in Genesis 15:18 that the river of Egypt unto the river of the Euphrates will be the boundaries of the extension of the promised land to Abram's seed a promise which is duplicated in 1 Kings chapter 4:21 paralleled in Second Chronicles chapter 9, verse 26, in which we read that the border of Israel extended from the river, meaning the river Euphrates, to the border of Egypt. So that the Davidic Solomonic kingdom is the fulfillment of the Abram promise, of the extension of the limits of Israel's territorial hegemony from Mesopotamia to the river of Egypt. This expansion under David is appropriate to the carnal nature of the Old Testament. It is a visual and physical display of a spiritual and eternal reality, namely the everlasting destruction and subduing of the heathen to the scepter of the Lord. I ask you to please note, there is none of this physical, military, and bloody expression in Christ Jesus, his apostles, or the early Christian church. That era which David embodies is transcendent. Transcended and surpassed. It has passed away with the dawn of the kingdom of the eschatological David. Not a kingdom of a bloody sword, but a kingdom of the sword of the Holy Spirit. Not a dominion which expands by armies and armed soldiers. But a dominion which advances by the gospel of death, (coughs) resurrection, and humble servanthood. The contrast between the protological David and the eschatological David is marked. And this chapter reveals it. The Lord Jesus does not take us back to a David armed with weapons of bloody death. The Lord Jesus brings us to a David armed with the weapons of the eschaton, spiritual weapons used by the Holy Spirit to change and transform the spirits of men, women, and children so as to fit them or to make them suited for an everlasting spiritual arena. In support of my remark that Second Samuel chapter eight is the high water mark of David's career, I offer the following. Second Samuel five presents a transition in the David narrative. The transitional setting shifts from Hebron to Jerusalem. The transitional rule shifts from the regional tribe of Judah to shepherd king of all Israel. David's upward spiral advances as he advances upward from the Judean Shephelah to the stronghold on Mount Zion. 2 Samuel 8 presents a further transition in the David narrative. The transitional setting shifts David's arena of activity from Jerusalem to the river Euphrates and the Valley of Salt. I want to make an explanatory note here. I take the marginal reading of verse 13 in chapter 8 from the parallel in First 1 Chronicles 18.12 where Edomites is certainly more accurate than Aramaeans. The Syrian Aramaeans being north of the Sea of Galilee, not south of the Dead Sea, in the region of the Valley of Saul. The transitional rule shifts from the nation of Israel to an Imperium stretching from the Brook of Egypt and a lot on the Gulf of Aqaba to the Euphrates River in Western Mesopotamia. If you look at your map, The map on the left-hand side of the handout describes the borders of the extent of the Davidic Empire from the Brook of Egypt and a lot at the peak of the Gulf of Aqaba in the south all the way to the Euphrates River in the north. David's upward spiral advances as he expands the borders of his kingdom to encompass virtually the entire Middle East from Mesopotamia to Egypt. The symmetry of transition in 2 Samuel 5 and 2 Samuel 8 underscores the parallel of shifting, advancing, expanding, Ruling power. David himself undergoes transition from tribal to national to international ruler. The climax of his national and international authority is portrayed in the unfolding drama of his fulfillment of God's promise to Abram in Genesis 15. Israel under David in 2 Samuel 8 rules the length and breadth of the Syro-Palestinian region as a small but nonetheless significant world power for more than 70 years. From David, about 1002 BC through the reign of Solomon, 931 BC, Israel is the keystone kingdom of the ancient Near East. In fact, throughout her history, Israel is a keystone nation in the land bridge between Africa and Asia. She is centrally positioned for the movement of the nations who pass through her in caravan trade, in military as uh, on, enclaves, etc., it is as if Israel, even during her history, benefits from the flow of the wealth of the Gentiles. Now, please notice, these symmetrical or parallel shifts in the ever-widening expansion of Davidic hegemony form an envelope. That is, chapter 5 and chapter 8 form an envelope around what occurs at the center of the Davidic capital. If Jerusalem becomes the city of David, not the city of the Jebusites, another subtle transition in chapter 5, And it is from Jerusalem, as David's capital city, that his international arm reaches out to the four points of the compass in chapter 8. Then chapters 6 and 7 contain the crucial narrative of what occurs in Jerusalem between the coming and the going. It is crucial to David's entire narrative history that the Lord bless, undergird, direct, and underwrite his actions. None other than God Almighty moves David, and David moves in response. Chapters 5 and 8 frame God's endorsement. God's endorsement of the Davidic kingdom, the Davidic empire, by featuring God's very own imprimatur in his presence with the ark and his covenant with his royal son. Second Samuel six and seven. Mark the divine approbation of David's capital, God's very own footstool rests here, and the precious divine relation, David is my son, and I am his heavenly father. In this protological Jerusalem, we have all the wonder, all the riches of the eschatological Jerusalem However dimly revealed. The mirror of God's throne in the Ark of the Covenant. The mirror of God's anointed King who is Son of the Father in heaven. David in 2 Samuel 5 to 8 moves in the shadow of an eschatological city an eschatological kingdom, an eschatological relation. The structure of these four chapters is central to understanding the affirmation of the kingdom of David in its dramatic transition and expansion. And that occurs with God's provisional blessing. So, to summarize, if you'll take your handout, the first page, David moves from conflict in 2 Samuel chapters 2 to 4 into Jerusalem in chapter 5. David moves out from Jerusalem in chapter 8 to conflict, not only in chapter 8, but in chapters 10 and 11 as well. The pattern of consolidation of his kingdom is sealed by the presence of the ark, chapter 6, and his covenantal relationship with God, chapter 7. We have, as it were, a bracket frame around the central and precious Action of God's own presence vouchsafed to David and his covenant relation confirmed and sealed to David in terms of father son dynamic. Now there is at the end of this eighth chapter an element of closure or a political administrative consolidation noted in verses 15 to 18 of chapter 8. There is a similar list very much like this in chapter 20 of 2 Samuel verses 23 to 26 and both of these lists are markers of closure. Administrative Political, socio-cultural closure. Here, in the names of verses 15 to 18, here is the list of David's administration, his royal administration after the battle struggles by which his empire is extended and secured. There are military leaders in this list in pairs. There are record keepers in this list in pairs. There are religious leaders in this list in pairs. To sum up his military conquests, the commander of his army and the commander of his bodyguard to sum up his national and international diplomacy, the recorder and the secretary of his royal administration, to sum up his religious and cultic devotion, the priests of the Lord's tabernacle and the keepers of the Ark of the Covenant. Those verses are a summary closure of and description of the bureaucracy of David's kingdom. Now, let's turn our attention to the structure, structure of chapter 8, and having set aside the closure of verses 15 to 18, we look at the previous verses 1 through 14. You will notice as you scan that section that verses 7 to 12 describing the dedication of the spoils of David's campaigns are an integral subunit in which he displays the fruits of his conquests in Jerusalem. So beginning with verses 7 to 12, we will label them a subunit in their own right which leaves by process of elimination verses 1 to 6 on the, of, of, on the front end of verses 7 to 12 and verses 13 to 14 on the back end. Notice, if you will, that those two units, verses 1 to 6 and verses 13 to 14, are matched by a perfect duplication. I'll give you a moment to scan them, verses 1 to 6, verses 13 to 14, and see if you can point them out. Your head is nodding, Art. Share your nod with us. Ah, that was a nod of uh, wonder or a nod of uh, mystery. We won't attribute it to a nod of sleep. Exact duplicates. Look at the end of verse 6, Marge, and the, Lord David where he went. And the end of verse 14, and the Lord David he went. very good, all right, so you see that in fact, verse 6, which is the end of another subunit, verses 1 through 6, is delimited from what follows, 7 to 12, by that statement, and it is paralleled or duplicated in verses 13 to 14, so that verses 1 to 6 and 13 to 14 are descriptions of David's campaigns of conquest, and we isolate 7 to 12, which are the displays of the booty or the spoils of those conquests. We therefore have three subunits in this chapter, uh, not including or not counting verses 15 to 18, which I regard as a closure To the entire narrative. Alright, notice also the pattern that is reflected in the first three verses. You will notice a definite sequence as you scan the beginning of verse 1, 2, and 3. You read in the first place that David defeated. You will notice. He defeated in verse 2. David defeated in verse 3. The subject and the verb are exactly alike. They all refer to the action of David in defeating these uh, nations, these uh, opponents. The second thing that follows is that uh, the name of the conquered uh, person or uh, nation is given. David defeated the Philistines. David defeated Moab. David defeated hadad Precise, parallel pattern of structure and arrangement. And then in the third place, we receive the detail of the campaign in which David defeated the given or conquered nation. Verse 1, the Philistines. What direction do you go from Israel to get to Philistia? Anyone? You go west. You go southwest. We will say west. Okay, He takes control, or as some of your versions say, he uh, takes the bridle of the mother city in verse 1. Now here we have a textual issue. Some of your versions may actually give the literal transliteration of the Hebrew, uh, Metheg Amah. I'm going to read this in parallel with uh, 1 Chronicles 18.1 in which the city of Gath is listed, so that there are those that suggest that this phrase, the bridle of the mother city, or Methag Amah, is actually Gath. And that would make sense, because it is one of the queen cities of the Philistine Pentapolis. You'll notice from the second map on your handout that there is no arrow to the west on that one, but nonetheless, David does move to the west or the southwest to conquer the Philistines. In the second verse, he moves to Moab. What direction would you go if you were going from Israel to Moab? You would be going east. And here he executes two-thirds of the soldiers of the enemy, twice as many executed or killed as left alive. Third, and you can get this direction from your map, he goes to Zobah. Where is Zobah? North. It is north. It is in the region of the Aramean nation or the Syrians. And here he defeats Hadad-Ezer, and you will notice the parallel of verse 3 with verse 12, and hobbles the horses, or at least hobbles some of the horses, of the Arameans as Phaedad uh, Ezer is campaigning in the region of the river. And where is the river? East. It is the Euphrates. And so it is also north of the, uh, of the region of Zoba. Now in hobbling the horses in verse uh, four, he does not hamstring all of them. He reserves some of them for a hundred chariots. And in hamstringing them, he simply makes them useless for running and uh, uh, being uh, a threat uh, militarily. Uh, it doesn't make the horses absolutely useless, although it does uh, lame them. Uh, nonetheless, it, they can be used for certain uh, restricted activities. Now, in verse 5, uh, we once again read of uh, Hadad-Ezer and David's uh, killing of 22,000 men of the Syrians. Syrians and Aramaeans are uh, synonyms. And in verse 6, we have the servants of David bringing tribute, uh, namely uh, from what? Uh, what group of people are not named there, but it is possible that it is the same uh, parallel as verse 12. You'll notice Syria or Aramaeans and Moab is quite conceivable that in verse 6, that is the tribute that is being uh, delivered to David, because you will notice the phrase, uh, they became servants of David, which is also duplicated in verse 2. All right, now, looking at verse 4, David spares 20,000 of the Aramaean uh, infantry. And we may ask ourselves why he does that. Uh, He executes uh, two-thirds of the uh, Moabite uh, opponent, but he uh, spares 20,000 foot soldiers while he kills, in verse 22,000 uh, why sparing these 20,000 foot soldiers it is possible that uh, he does with them what he does with the uh, horses that he does not hamstring in verse 4 in other words He is reserving them for future military activity. And so he spares 20,000 in verse 4 because he's going to use them in verse 5 to campaign against the other Arameans. In other words, he's conscripted them into his own army to be an increased force against their own countrymen. That is a suggestion as to why he treats the Arameans in verse 4 differently than he does the Arameans in verse 22. In verse 6, he puts garrisons in Syria of Damascus. Capital of Syria is Damascus, one of the most ancient cities of the world, as a matter of fact. And he places garrisons there. We might ask ourselves why he does that. You have to think like a general now. He's going to hold his territory by provisioning garrisons there in order to uh, make certain that his border doesn't shrink. Uh, He places a military enclave there in order to maintain control of that region. Now, in verse 10, he is greeted by Toi, in fact, receives an embassy from Toy, which consists of his son and uh, lots of additional uh, spoils, verse uh, 10, of silver, gold, and bronze. Uh, why is Toy uh, well disposed to David? He is at war with Hadad Ezer, correct? So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And I'm happy to ally myself with him and to encourage him and to bring him uh, all the kind of support that he needs in order to get the enemy off my back. Verse 12 is a summary statement. I'm sorry, I skipped verse 11 because there's a word here we need to look at. And that's that word dedicated, uh, which appears in verse 11. Uh, David dedicating these article of the silver, gold, and bronze, uh, to the Lord. The uh, Hebrew word here is Kadish, uh, which comes from the root kadosh, uh, and that is the word for holy or sanctified, and so dedication here reminds us that David sanctifies these items. Uh, he sets them apart, which is the Basic meaning of the word "kodesh" in Hebrew, and "sanctus" in Latin, and "hagios" in Greek, to be set apart, uh, so that a sanctified life is a life set apart, set apart to the Lord, and set apart from sin. Even as God Himself is kodesh, 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 kodeshim; He is holy of holies. He is the holiest of all. He is supremely holy because he is supremely set apart from sin. Well, it's not as if these uh, uh, metals are sinful or any of that kind. The point here is that uh, they are set apart to a sacred use, to a sacred purpose. And, of course, uh, the holiness of the Christian believer is that he's been set apart to a sacred purpose, namely to be a mirror reflection of the holiness of God in his life, in his character, and in his behavior. All right, that brings us to verse 12 and the summary statement of the conquered vassal nations. Uh, we know about Syria and we also know about Moab. Uh, what about Ammon? Uh, uh, just uh, pause there for a moment. We know about the Philistines. And we know about Hadad-Ezer, but what about Amalek? If this is a summary statement, uh, so far in chapter 8, we haven't heard anything about David uh, attacking or campaigning against the Ammonites and against the Amalekites. So what do we have here? No, go the other way, Marge. Something is coming up, right. In chapters 10 and 11, we're going to find David campaigning or sending his army against the Ammonites and the Amalekites. So this is proleptic. It's an anticipation of uh, David's ultimate uh, campaigns, the the, the full and thorough uh, statement of his campaigns. And then in verse 13, we have, uh, this interesting statement uh, about David making a name for himself uh, from killing the Syrians in the Valley of Salt. Now, the Syrians there in that uh, reading are the Aramites. Uh, in Hebrew, Aram. Okay? This would be translated in A, an R, an M, and we would put vowels in between to get Aram. Now, some of you may have, uh, as I noted earlier, uh, I am not accepting this reading because we have a textual issue here. I am reading Valley of Salt here as Edom. And you can see that the textual issue is uh, somewhat understandable because of the little heel on the top of the Dalith, which is not there on the Hebrew letter Resh. And if you were a scribe copying this, you could easily miss the little hook here and read Aram for Adam. Well, the context here, namely the phrase Valley of Salt, makes it very clear that the reading should be Adam, Edom, because there's no Valley of Salt in Syria. The Aramean, or Syrian nation, is way north of the Valley of Salt, which is south of the Dead Sea. And consequently, the version in Chronicles that reads this as the Edomites is to be preferred to this reading here in 2 Samuel 8.13, because in 1 Chronicles 18, Uh, David is described as campaigning to the south and gaining that port of Eilat. Now we might ask ourselves, those of you who remember the famous 1967 Six Days War campaign between Israel and Egypt, that war which set off the current tensions in Palestine and Israel today, uh, that war... (coughs) Uh, which resulted in the Israeli blitzkrieg across the Sinai Peninsula and the penetration of the Suez Canal, devastation of the Egyptian army. That war was started because the Egyptians blockaded the port of Elat. Why would that set off what became a Mideastern war? Because as you can see from your map, a lot is an outlet to the Indian Ocean. It's a seaport outlet to East Africa. It is a seaport that allows you to bring in the trade which is coming from Africa and Saudi Arabia, etc. A lot was a very sought after port in Old Testament times, and the Israelis had their seaport to the Indian Ocean and to the Pacific in a lot in 1967, and when it was shut off, they went to war to open it up. Because, of course, if they lost a lot, and if the Egyptians had seized it and controlled it, what would it have done to the shipping routes of Israel? All the way out through the Mediterranean and the Straits of Gibraltar and then down around Africa in order to get around to Asia, etc. No way are we going to spend all that money, time and energy when all we need to do is control our own seaport. Well, a little bit of of modern ancient history uh, because, of course, out of that six days war came the conquest of Jerusalem and the seizing of the Wailing Wall and the division of the West Bank, etc., etc., and all of the turmoil that has resulted ever since because the Egyptians wouldn't leave well enough alone and tried to bottle up a sovereign nation, which said, not on your life, at least not yet. All right. <clears throat> now, uh, back to David in verse 15. We have this noted phrase that David reigned over Israel, administered justice, and righteousness, or righteousness and equity. Now, obviously, these qualities are a mirror reflection of God's very own character. God is righteous and just. He is a God of righteousness and equity. Has heaven arrived on earth in Second Samuel chapter 8? with God's royal scion in Jerusalem, having extended his scepter over the Gentiles and ruling with righteousness and equity. And Second Samuel chapters 11 to 20 will echo and re-echo, no, no, absolutely not. No heaven on earth. Well, will this righteousness and justice ever arrive. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from that time forth and forever more. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says that that day will arrive. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord, our righteousness. Jeremiah chapter 23, 5 and 6. David will not be that eschatological king of righteousness and equity, though he will reflect it in measure. But his own iniquities will indicate that he is not the bringer. Of the Lord, our righteousness, the Lord, our equity, the Lord, our justice. He is not to be identified with the Lord. For it is that person who will bring in an everlasting righteousness, justice, and equity in a kingdom where there is no more. Sin, nor any more death. No, not anymore. Verse 15 projects us then to the prophetic eschatology. The narrative history is the anticipation of the progetic, prophetic. Projection of an eschatological king, an eschatological David, who will, as Isaiah and Jeremiah predict, reign in everlasting righteousness and equity. Let's notice one more thing about the list in verses 15 to 18. Let's notice the position of the priests, in this sequence. The priests are sandwiched between military or police officials and civil servants. Notice, first on the list, Joab, a military figure. Second on the list, Jehoshaphat, the recorder, a civil servant. Third on the list, Zadok, a priest. Fourth on the list, Ahimelech, a priest. Fifth on the list, Saraiah, a secretary, once again a civil servant. And finally, sixth on the list, Benaiah, the chief of the Cherethites and Pelothites, who in 2 Samuel 23, verse 23 is called the leader of the guards, or the leader of the bodyguards of David, a police official, in addition to having some military prominence because he was one of David's mighty men. So that we have a sandwich here in which the priests are at the center of the administrative life or they are at the center of the bureaucratic life, as in fact the worship of God is at the center of the life of this kingdom. The priests are central, because the tabernacle is central, because God himself is central. Now, before we take our break, I want to... Relay a breaking story archaeologically that hit the news wires this week related to the excavation of the Valley of Elah. Who remembers what happened in the Valley of Elah? Carol? Goliath. David and Goliath. Very good. And you may recall that. On September 17th, when we looked at that uh, narrative, I gave you some pictures of the geography of the Valley of Elah. And several years ago, a Canaanite fortress was discovered on a hilltop in the Valley of Elah. And the name of that fortress is Caiapha, Kirbit Caiapha a very interesting uh, archaeological site as they began to excavate it under the direction of Gershon Galil of the University of Haifa in Israel, they found a broken piece of pottery. And on that pottery ancient Hebrew writing. This week Galileo released his translation of that writing on that pottery shard. And the date of that writing, all who have excavated at the site have dated it to 1000 B.C., which puts that pottery shard into the reign of King David. Writing on a piece of pottery dated to the reign of King David. It is the oldest Hebrew inscription thus far discovered. The oldest Hebrew inscription on record. Now, why do I note it? Because there are liberal scholars who do not believe the kingdom of David existed in 1000 B.C. They believe he's a myth manufactured in the later uh, Israeli history and projected into the past. And they do not believe that there were any persons sophisticated or learned enough to know how to write in Israel in 1000 B.C so that the discovery of the writing on this shard, the Hebrew writing on this shard, indicates that there were literate people able to write Hebrew in 1000 B.C., and what you read about the secretary and recorder of David's kingdom here in 2 Samuel 8 is indirectly vindicated and confirmed. So that Galil, much to the chagrin of the liberal minimalists who minimalize Old Testament history, and they dominate Old Testament scholars, scholarship in many circles today, Galil parades before the face of the minimalists this little shard of Hebrew writing, and says, There, you see? There are literate persons in the Davidic era who are capable of writing Hebrew on pieces of pottery and firing it in a kiln and leaving it to history or to the archaeologist's spade. If you are interested in the full story, I suggest that you look at the site called Ferrell's Travel Blog, F-E-R-R-E-L-L, F E R R E L L Farrell's travel blog and click on his A law fortress story. You will even see a picture of the shard and a picture of the very primitive Hebrew script on that shard which he has translated and you will be able to read an English translation of his rec- of, uh, an english version of what he has translated from the chart now all that will have to be tested by other scholars it it's a routine matter that one when somebody translates an ancient piece of writing it has to be submitted to others in order to confirm that he's not misread any of the characters that he's translated correctly that if these if there are any holes on the line and what he has suggested is filling in the hole or filling in the gap is uh, is accepted by others. So uh, there's still some uh, uh, study to be done on this, but nonetheless the basic uh, work is done and the significance of it uh, is now uh, before the public. What a marvelous last 10 or 15 years we've had in the problems of God archaeologically. Discovery potentially of David's foundation palace stones. The discovery of Nehemiah's wall, the discovery of the full import of the Pool of Siloam where Jesus sends the blind man in uh, John chapter 9. What an explosion of discoveries and two amulets which contain parts of Numbers in Deuteronomy including pieces of the ironic benediction which date from the 6th or 7th century BC. You must keep in mind that the liberals do not believe that those texts in Numbers and Deuteronomy were written until the 2nd or 3rd century B.C. And yet, two silver amulets dated to the 6th and 7th century B.C. with part of the Lord bless you and keep you on it. Who says this book cannot be vindicated as trustworthy? Ah, you have your head in the sand if you do not believe it. Any questions or comments about chapter 8? Then take your break. And you'll notice from your outline that I have commended an article uh, that I've written on the krooks.com website entitled a king and a cripple, and I would encourage you to take a look at that in the light of what we will say this evening for your own interest as well as instruction. Here in 2 Samuel 9, we meet Mephibosheth for the first time. No protests out there? Am I right about that, Kay? I, I, I think there's more to the story than you, what it says here. Your husband says no. He's shaking his head vigorously. Bob? I remember that he came up before, but I don't remember where. He has come up before. Does anybody remember where? Or in what context? Seven. It's how he got crippled, right? Well, how'd that happen, Kay? He was dropped. He was dropped. Who dropped him? His nurse. His nurse. Why would she? Why did she drop him? They were uh, rushing out when Jonathan something was going on, and they were rushing out. She was trying to save his life. Yes, she was. It's during the conflict with Ishbosheth. It's the struggle between David's house in Hebron and Ishbosheth. In Mahanaim, across the Jordan, and in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, uh, his uh, his uh, laming and crippling is inserted into that story of the climax of that struggle because in that fourth chapter, Ishbosheth himself is going to be assassinated uh, by uh, those individuals who come in while he's sleeping at midday. All right, so no, this is not the first time that we have met Mephibosheth. We were introduced to him uh, earlier. <coughs> Why then does the narrator mention the incident in one short verse, five chapters previous to this chapter in which he spends a whole chapter talking about it? Why didn't he just tell us what happened to him when his nurse dropped him at the beginning of chapter 9? Oh, you didn't think about that. You, You must ask yourself these questions. These are not accidents. The narrator is doing something for a particular reason, and he wants you to think about it. You don't just come and sit and do nothing. Your brains are to work. You don't just sit down and read the Bible and say, oh, that makes me feel good. Your brain is supposed to work. You're supposed to love your Lord, your God, with all your mind. Christians that think that they got a free pass and can camp out and don't have to think anymore. I'm sorry. That's one of the reasons liberals take over denominations. And because the conservatives stop thinking and they sit on their salvation laurels. Or as we say in reform circles, they become the frozen chosen. You don't have any license to stop learning No matter what your age, as long as you have mental capacity, you are still to grow in knowledge. Because you don't know it all. And I don't know it all. And there aren't too many of us human beings that know very much of all. And that's the reason we got to keep learning. Because when you get to heaven, you're not going to stop. I ain't got news for you. Your glorified brains are going to keep on working for all eternity. Because it will take you an eternity to learn as much as one-tenth of what God knows. And you still won't know it all. So, glorifying God with your intelligence, with your understanding, is a privilege, a great blessing to you to use your mind to understand God himself in all the depths and wonder of his being, including his revelation in the scriptures and what he has done in the history of the Christian church, as well as the history of the Six-Day War in 1967. Because that does fit in to the providence of God in the 20th century. Well, all right. Now, back to to the hot button that started this. Why did he give us one verse in chapter 4, and then five chapters later he gives us a whole chapter on Mephibosheth? Because in that fourth chapter he is foreshadowing what he is going to develop. He is placing in his narrative... Of David's career, a series of ripples. They are just like ripples on a pool of water. You've all thrown stones in a lake or in a pool, and you've noticed how the ripples emanate out from the place where the stone falls. We have a narrator who is drafting and creating Narrative ripples. Narrative ripple layers of story as it unfolds. And now here in chapter 9, we come to the second narrative ripple in the story of Mephibosheth. Now it initially draws... Our attention to this present incident, chapter 9, in relationship to a multiplicity of other narrative relationships. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> Let's begin to think about the expansion of the Mephibosheth account here, a whole chapter, rather than just a verse, in relationship to some other narrative relationships in that tandem, David Mephibosheth. The relationship of Mephibosheth is that he is whose son? Anyone? He is Jonathan's son. So already we're thinking about a relationship between Jonathan and David, as we're thinking about Mephibosheth, and the narrator is intentionally drawing our attention to that. But beyond that, that's the obvious one. Beyond that, we have the relationship of David and Saul. That relationship was inaugurated, you recall, in 1 Samuel 16, when David was invited to live Under Saul's roof. He came to play the lyre for Saul, and that relationship led to perfect peace and rest. Marge? No. No, it did not. It led to tension and strife and attempted murder. Is a solide, is a solide under David's roof going to lead to strife and tension and attempted murder. Do we have a replay here of a narrative ripple that is going to once again take us back? to the Saul-eyed, David-eyed conflict. What would that look like? What would that look like in Mephibosheth? If there is tension on the horizon in Mephibosheth's entrance into David's house, Mephibosheth under David's roof, a Saul-eyed under a Davidic roof, what would that tension and strife look like? Might he try to seize the throne? The throne that really belongs to his grandfather Saul? Might he attempt to subvert the kingdom of David by insinuating himself under his roof and within his court Might he even attempt to murder David as his grandfather attempted to and did not succeed that Mephibosheth could accomplish what his grandfather did not? Is the narrator foreshadowing once more the edge of tension or this relationship on the edge of conflict between Saul's grandson and Saul's enemy the narrative ripples you see are broader than just the introduction of Mephibosheth to David's table well there is David and Jonathan and that relationship, which we've already described. But there is language here in this ninth chapter, which is a virtual duplicate echo of language in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14. Is there any of the house of Jonathan that I may show kindness to? That very language occurs in verse 14 of 1 Samuel 20 in the context of the covenant which was made between David and Jonathan. Is David's kindness here to Mephibosheth a mirror of his covenant pledge to his father Jonathan? And some heads are nodding. It appears so, does it not? It appears as if David in his dialogue here is extending the kindness of the covenant that he had pledged to Jonathan. Jonathan. It would appear as if the narrative ripple between Jonathan and David here in the case of Mephibosheth is David showing kindness in fulfillment of the pledge that he made to show kindness. And the narrator reinforces that impression with a mirror in vocabulary. We have in this term for covenant kindness which is in the Hebrew language, Hesed. Variously translated loving kindness, covenant loyalty, even grace. Translated here, kindness, we have a mirror of vocabulary because in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, that term, Hesed, or kindness, appears in verse 1 and in verse 3. And in verse 7. Now turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Keep your finger in 2 Samuel 9. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. And in verse 8. The Hebrew word hesed. And in verse 14, the Hebrew word hesed. And in verse 15, the Hebrew word hesed. 343! And you still don't think this narrator is a genius? You still don't think that he's laying clues down in his narrative all along the way? Three occurrences of hesed in 2 Samuel 9, three occurrences of hesed in 1 Samuel 20. Is it not a narrative mirror duplication that in fact David is showing positive virtuous kindness to Jonathan's seed? And so the ripple of the second layer here in the Mephibosheth narrative is a symmetry of mimesis, a symmetry of imitation. The word mimesis means imitation, thematic imitation. Second Samuel 9 and Hesed kindness is a mirror of 1 Samuel 20 and Hesed kindness. Jonathan's pledge of Hesed to David is mirrored in David's pledge of Hesed to Mephibosheth. Or so, we may read the narrative And finally, there is a relationship between David and Jerusalem. You may ask why the combination of the relationship between David and Jerusalem? How does the story of David and Mephibosheth reflect on David's relationship with Jerusalem? You must think of the placement. The placement of chapter 9 in the David narrative. Chapter 9 placed by our narrator after chapter 8 in which David's kingdom has been expanded and consolidated and Jerusalem. Jerusalem has become the seat of the Davidic empire, the place of the Davidic rule over the nations. Into Jerusalem comes Jonathan's son, a beneficiary of the prosperity and pacification of David's kingdom and its borders. He reaps the benefits of the Davidic peace. And prosperity. But, but is his arrival fully beneficial? Or is there something portentous, something potentially ominous, something tremulous about his arrival in Jerusalem? Notice verse seven. Do not fear was Mephibosheth Trembling. Did he arrive frightened? Was he scheming his own well-placed position as the forerunner of a rebellion to once again seize the throne for the house of Saul? After all, another person under David's roof would also be the beneficiary of chesed kindness from David. Yet he would position himself in Jerusalem so as to foment rebellion. About whom am I speaking? Absalom. Does Mephibosheth only come to play the role of the pretender so as to do what his grandfather Saul could not do, to kill David or do what Absalom beats him to the punch in doing, drive David off his throne and out of Jerusalem? Out of Jerusalem, across the Kidron, up the east bank, through the Mount of Olives, and down the slopes, across the desert in the Jordan. Is that what he's come to Jerusalem to do? And don't forget, somebody else walked that very road east of Jerusalem Across the Kidron, up the Mount of Olives, into exile. Don't forget. The narrative forces, and the narrator himself, compels us to pile up the narrative layers of David's story, the narrative ripples in order to discern character. The issue here is character. And he uses these ripple layers in order to develop it, in order to expose it, in order to put the spotlight on character. The characterization of David in this narrative. The characterization of Mephibosheth in this narrative. The characterization of who else in this narrative? Zeba. Zeba. Yeah. The narrator does not leave him out. You dare not overlook him. All right, now, what is your impression of the character of Mephibosheth? As you think about this chapter, what is your impression of the character of Mephibosheth? Carol, your head is nodding. You like him, all right? We have a vote for Mephibosheth. Seems grateful. He is. Grateful. He is grateful. All right. Any other characteristics, Art? Say he's humble. He is humble. You should notice a dead dog like me. Very good. Recognizes David. Is there any other indication of humility in the narrative? Okay. Anything else? He prostrates, he prostrates himself. What is his condition, Marge? What is his condition? What is his con- mean his cripple. Yeah. And what does he do? You said it. What does he do? He prostrates, he prostrates himself. Do you know how difficult it is for a cripple? to prostrate themselves? Do you know what that costs them? And yet, he does it. You still voting for him, Carol? She's still voting for it. All right, so there are narrative elements in this chapter that cause you to say, with Carol, he's a good guy, I like him. How old is Mephibosheth in this ninth chapter? He is old enough to have a son. That is precisely the right answer. Good for you, (laughs) Don. Verse 12. He was how old when he is first introduced? He is five years old in chapter 4. But now he is old enough to have a son. And the son is named Micah. Does the narrator's mention of his son alter your estimate of his character? Is he still a good guy, Carol? Well, it sounds like his sister, not Michael? Sorry. His aunt. aunt. But no, it's not exactly the same. Does the fact that he has a son and it's mentioned here does that change the fact you think he's a good guy? Does it make you think that he's even a better guy or a nicer guy? He's a family man. That's exactly what I was hoping you would say, all right? You guys are you guys are landing right on my brain. That's 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 scary. <laughs> Very good. Okay, because after all, minds that think alike. We don't say they're great or otherwise. <laughs> all right. The mention of the child, you see, brings the diminutive, brings the lesser ch- the lesser figure into the picture. And endears you to him. All you women know all about that, you grandmas, don't you? Of course you do. You want to hold those little babies, don't you? And you're, you're very much attracted to them. Yes. In fact, it's hard for grandpas to get them away from grandmas. All right. <clears throat> this characteristic of mentioning the child is part of the narrator's portrait of the character of Mephibosheth. It endears you to him to a degree. And so it makes him even more of a good guy. I like him. He's a family man. He's got a little boy. All right. Now, does the narrator place in this chapter any structural elements that help us in the matter of characterization. So we're gonna ask now the question of narrative structure, the structure of this chapter and its relationship to narrative characterization. First of all, we ask the question, is there structure in the chapter? Do you detect any structural element? Is there a dominant structural element in this narrative? And if so, what is it? What kind of action is going on in this narrative? And I'm not thinking of Mephibosheth prostrating himself before David. How is this narrative unfolding? By what means? Hesed. Not the said. Okay, but I, I want you to to think about how does this chapter, how does the story unfold in in terms of what kind of activity? Dialogue. Dialogue. Exactly Dialogue. right. Speech. Notice. Notice that it's talking that drives this story. So it is from the dialogue, it is from the conversations that our narrator is setting up the issue of characterization. Now, that's the mark of a great artist, a great writer anyway. All of you that know uh, how a good a story is built based upon dialogue, narration, or conversation that is giving you insight into the character of the individuals that are speaking. Same thing is going on here. What do we have? The first dialogue is between who and whom? David and Zeba. Okay, draw it out. How many verses? One through four. <laughs> You're reading my outline. Very good. All right. <laughs> notice, notice within that opening dialogue between David and Zeba, there is a precise duplication. Verse 1 and verse 3. That I may show kindness is precisely duplicated, therefore holding that dialogue unit together. All right, so it's its own distinct narrative unit. It's its own distinct narrative dialogue unit, and we're going to come back to it in a moment and ask the question about characterization. All right, where is the next dialogue unit, and between who and whom? It's between David and Mephibosheth what verses? K okay. five through eight. Five through eight is the next narrative unit. Once again, it's a dialogic unit, and we'll come back to that and ask question about characterization. And the final narrative unit, the final dialogic narrative unit, is between who and whom? David and Ziba. Once again, what verses? 9 to 13, thank you. And notice what we have in verse 11 and 13. We have another duplication. Eight at the king's table or eight at table regularly. In the David Zeba scenes, units, we have duplications. So that David and Zeba sandwich David and Mephibosheth. Verses 1 to 4, David and Zeba. Verses 9 to 13, David and Zeba. In between, verses 5 to 8, David and Mephibosheth. Now, does this place Zeba in a negative character Reflection. Where is the Hesed in this chapter? One, three, and seven. One, three and seven. The Hesed is directed towards whom? Mephibosheth, and that is explicit in verse seven, is it not? So Hesed in one and three is exegetically explained by Hesed in verse seven, namely that it is directed towards Mephibosheth. Does that leave Ziba outside of Hesed? Does that place? Ziba outside of Hesed, which Mephibosheth receives. Is the narrator providing clues to the character of Ziba by the way he structures the narrative dialogue in the chapter? He places Ziba outside the center of David's kindness Verses five through eight, particularly centering on verse seven, he places Zeba outside of that scene. Zeba does not appear in that central scene. The center of David's loving kindness to Mephibosheth does not include Zeba in the picture. The narrator places him as a bystander, a bystander to the reality of Hesed kindness, but he does not receive it. He does not benefit from it. He does not possess it. Zeba is on the outside of David's kindness, though he is the agent through which that kindness is bestowed. And so is our narrator. In fact, informing us by the way he structures the relationship between the center of hesed in the center of the David Mephibosheth scene, is he suggesting to us that Ziba lacks hesed? He has none. And does this gall him? Does this attention and Hesed to Mephibosheth frustrate Ziba. Does bestowing royal court ordered kindness on a cripple eat away at Ziba's conscience? You must ask yourself. Why the narrator leaves no Hesed in the scene for Zeba? You must ask yourself that question. Zeba has been the major domo, has he not? Verse 2 the servant in Saul's palace. He's been in charge. He has been in charge with 15 sons and 20 servants under his command, verse 10. He's been the ramrod. He's been the chief muckety-muck. He's been the grand poobah in Saul's palace. He's had it all because he's on the top of the pyramid. Now who is in charge? David is in charge. Ziba has been subordinated as he has not been for years. And to what purpose? To what purpose are his 15 sons and his 20 servants put? As well as this previous major domo. To what purpose are they put? To take care of one person. To take care of one cripple. We are 36 able-bodied men. We work out at the gym every day. We've got abs that will make your teeth drool. Now, we've got to serve this cripple. Give me a break. Zeba doing a slow burn because he is now shackled with servitude to a cripple who has been dwelling in obscurity in an obscure village in an obscure man's house in an obscure village in a place so obscure that no one even certainly knows today where it exists. Mephibosheth is still today hiding out in an obscure place because we don't know where it was. And now this no-name, this obscure no-name I've got to make all of my energies and all the energies of my servants and sons serve him. Do we get a clue to Ziba's character in his dialogue with David? Verse 2. David says, are you Ziba? Ziba responds, your servant, one Hebrew word. One Hebrew word. King of Zion and Jerusalem calls you into his presence and says, Are you Zeba? One Hebrew word. One Hebrew word. Curt, abrupt. Not polite. Slightly discourteous. Bluff. Are you Zeba? Boof. Now, compare verse 6. David says, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth says, here is your servant. Or behold, here is your servant. Or I am your servant. All those translations are possible. Two Hebrew words. He doubles. He's loquacious in comparison with Ziba. He's running at the mouth in comparison with Ziba. Courteous. Now, verse 2. What action from Ziba? Compare with verse 6. What action from Mephibosheth? There's no bow from Ziba before David. Mephibosheth prostrates himself painfully, abasing himself. Before the king, and even describing himself as a dead dog. Zeba. Boof! Okay. Boof Yeah, I'm here. Boof! Finally, is the emphasis On being servant to Mephibosheth. Count them five times. Verses 9 to 12. Five times Ziba is going to be servant to Mephibosheth. Is that too much? Too much salt in a wound for Ziba. So that we look at the structure one more time. In verses 1 to 4. Notice David in verse 1, and hesed. David, in verse 3, and hesed. And Ziba, in between, and no hesed. In verse 11, Mephibosheth. In verse 13, Mephibosheth. And in verse 12, Ziba, the sandwich of David in verses 1 to 3 and the sandwich of Mephibosheth in verses 11 to 13 squeeze Ziba between. David gives Hesed, Mephibosheth receives Hesed, Ziba is outside of Hesed, but sandwiched by the reality of it, particularly in verses 1 to 3, and it galls him. It galls him. The mirror of loving kindness here reflects David and Mephibosheth, not David and Ziba, or David, Mephibosheth, and Ziba. That mirror of loving kindness is as the hesed of the Lord, a mirror of God's hesed His loving kindness, which finds sinners, dead dogs, unworthy, prostrate in humiliation and self-abasement before the king of kings, all too conscious of their unworthiness, their undeserving, their crippled and defective nature and character. Sinners need someone outside of themselves to show them Hesed, merciful, loving kindness for Jesus' sake. For Jesus is the eschatological king of Hesed, love and grace. Now, the Mephibosheth incident <clears throat> Does not appear in First Chronicles. His name, as son of Jonathan, does appear twice in First Chronicles, chapter eight, verse thirty-four, and chapter nine, verse forty. But the name appears in Chronicles as Meribaal Maribbaal, not Mephibosheth. His own son Micah is also listed with him in. First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, um, First Chronicles 8 and 9. <clears throat> the narrative layers of the David story in First Chronicles are ripples of a virtually righteous and godly upward spiral. The Chronicler, as the narrator of First and Second Chronicles is often called, the Chronicler presents a uniformly positive portrait of David's vocation and enthronement as king of Israel at Jerusalem. And yet, and yet, in 2 Chronicles 17.3, he comments on David's example, as he calls it, in his earlier days, his earlier days, when he sought the Lord and walked in his commandments. That statement in Second Chronicles 17.3 is an implicit, if not explicit, acknowledgement that David's latter days, David's latter days were marred by his not seeking the Lord consistently nor consistently walking in the way of the Lord's commandments. The absence of the Mephibosheth narrative from Chronicles places it in the same category as the absence of the Bathsheba and Uriah incident from Chronicles, the absence of the Amnon and Absalom debacles from Chronicles, and the absence of David's horrific sin in the matter of the census from Chronicles. Each of these missing incidents from Chronicles shifts our attention in reading the Chronicler's narrative to the establishment of a godly Davidic monarchy and a godly reign in Jerusalem. That is his purpose, to accentuate the positive. Hence, the presence in First Chronicles of a narrative, chapter 18 which parallels David's expansion to become an international ruler of an extensive Israelite kingdom, a narrative matching and supplementing 2 Samuel 8, which we just considered, is consistent with the positive reporting of David's reign characteristic of Chronicles. He does have a chapter in Chronicles, which matches the chapter of Second Samuel 8, a positive portrait of David's expanding kingdom. Therefore, the absence from 1 Chronicles of a narrative parallel to the Mephibosheth incident in 2 Samuel 9 suggests that 2 Samuel 9 represents a transitional shift in the Davidic narrative. What has climaxed with David's rise to international prominence in 2 Samuel 8 now in 2 Samuel 9 begins to show the misty and clouded anticipations of looming injustice and unrighteousness looming injustice and unrighteousness Is it coincidental Is it coincidental I ask you that 2 Samuel 8:15 features David's justice and righteousness, and the very next chapter, the very next chapter, 2 Samuel 9, will begin to raise narrative scenarios which will demonstrate the very opposite, namely David's injustice and in unrighteousness. Our narrator in 2 Samuel 9 has inserted a narrative which forebodes a shift. Yet another transitional shift in David's story. The fuming and glowering Ziba may go through the motions of dutiful servanthood as long as Mephibosheth sits at David's table, but rupture and tear David away from that table. Rupture and tear David away from that table, and solitary Mephibosheth, solitary cripple Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth all alone looks completely inconsequential completely inconsequential in comparison with 35, yea, 36, count them, 36 bodies who converge on David in flight from Absalom, while Mephibosheth remains in Jerusalem with his two lame feet. Second, Samuel 9 is a narrative shift. We are transitioning to David's decline and fall. We are transitioning to David's decline and fall with Second Samuel 9. The ripples will unfold completely. And the Mephibosheth narrative is the portent of sad, tragic, wicked, downright evil things to come. And they're going to come from David. Ironies, 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 sin, 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 ever crouching, ever reaching, ever entangling, ever entrapping, ever deceiving, ever destroying. David's upward spiral is over. It is over. And we are on the brink of the downward slope and the gyration of David down, 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 perilously down in the direction of Saul's very own decline. But for the grace of God, he will perish. Yes. What our narrator has done by inserting the Mephibosheth narrative here into the ninth chapter of 2 Samuel is To give us the sense of the ripples, of the layers, of anticipatory foreboding which are on the horizon. Mephibosheth will remain the good guy. David will become the bad guy. And I will defend that interpretation until I see Mephibosheth face to face. (laughs) Any questions or comments? All right, get out your grease. The skids are coming. David heading down. Chapters 10 and 11 next week.